Coming up, how supervolcanoes changed the face of Mars. Those kinds of eruptions are so large that they can very strongly affect the climate of the entire planet. And where did the mould that made penicillin come from? The most common story is it came through an open window. Just one problem. The windows were never open. Fleming would have been a bad bacteriologist if they had been. We sift the fact from the fiction in scientific myths. Plus, we learn how to build a millimetre-long particle accelerator. You're listening to The Nature Podcast for the 3rd of October 2013. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Thea Cunningham. The surface of Mars is peppered with craters caused, scientists believe, by the impact of bits of rock from space. But according to new research, planetary crashes don't explain all the craters. Two geologists think that in a region called the Arabia Terra, some of the supposed impact craters are in fact volcanic structures called calderas. Caldera means cauldron. It's the depression left in the crust when a volcano collapses. The calderas on Mars are giant, suggesting that they were left by supervolcanoes. These are explosive eruptions thousands of times larger than your regular garden variety volcano. Noah Baker spoke to Joe Michalski from the Natural History Museum in the UK. He began by asking Joe if Mars is known for its volcanism. All of the Mars geologists agree on a few things. And one of those things is that we see volcanoes going back three, three and a half billion years. Something we also all agree on is that there should have been more volcanism early in Mars history. And lastly, another thing we all agree on is that we have no idea what the most ancient volcanoes look like. So why the Arabia Terra? This is an area of Mars which is known for having very ancient cratered crusts. Now, some of those impact craters, upon further review, actually are not impact craters. They don't have all the pieces of evidence that you'd look for for an impact crater. In fact, they turn out to be depressions that show evidence for volcanism. When I imagine a volcano, I imagine something which looks kind of more like a mountain than a crater. When a volcano is erupting in an effusive process, that is, lava is squeezing out of the vent over and over and over again, it builds up a mountain around that vent. But there is a type of volcano on Earth which lacks the mountainous terrain and the topographic profile. Super volcanoes are exactly like that. Because of the evacuation of magma from depth, it results in collapse of the terrain. That's exactly what we see on Mars in this case, is giant calderas that have formed through a sequence of collapse. What is it that defines a supervolcano? Is it just this caldera form, or is there something beyond that? A supervolcano is actually not a technical geological term, but uh, it is a useful term because it does convey a particular idea. So a supervolcano is really a massive volcano, massive eruption that is largely explosive and associated with collapse. These craters that you found on Mars that you are sort of now redefining potentially as supervolcanoes, what is it that makes you think that they're supervolcanoes or they were supervolcanoes and that they aren't impact craters? We've identified a number of features in Arabia Terra that we think are candidate supervolcanoes. They don't show any evidence for being impact craters. Now, lacking evidence for impact alone is not enough to dismiss them as impact craters or to to say that they must be volcanic. 
The other key piece of information is looking at how deep the craters are compared to the diameter. Now imagine if you were digging holes in uh, beach sand, right? And you started at noon and you dug one every 30 minutes. So throughout the day, uh, next to each other, you had one very deep one. Um, next one is less deep, next one is less deep, and less deep. And that's happening because the water flows into it and washes some of the sand in. So the oldest one would be mostly filled with sand, whereas the one you just dug would be quite deep. What's interesting is that these craters are very ancient, but they have a high depth to diameter ratio. If all those pieces of evidence for impact had been removed by erosion, the process of erosion should have filled in the crater with sediment and the material from the walls of the crater as it was wearing it down over time. So now we're, we measure these craters and we say, wow, they're quite deep for being old. And if they've really been modified so much by erosion, why are they so deep? That's a quantitative measure that we can use. And do supervolcanoes like this exist on Earth? There are a handful of them that we know about that have erupted over the last tens of millions of years. But the volcano isn't there, right? It's a depression, a crater. So moving backwards in time, there probably were thousands or millions of them. What would the fallout of these eruptions have been like? Any volcanic eruption is a violent action which is destructive to any of the people living around that volcano. So even small volcanoes can produce catastrophic consequences for humans. Supervolcanoes have never erupted since modern man has existed. But those kinds of eruptions are so large that they can very strongly affect the climate of the entire planet. And that's true of Mars as well. These volcanoes would have emitted gases into the atmosphere and ash, which could have stayed in suspension for many years. And that would have strongly affected the climate of the planet, perhaps sending it into massive periods of cooling and could also result in heating in certain ways as well. Could there be more supervolcanoes on Mars? We haven't yet completed a full survey of the ancient crust to find many more of these kinds of calderas, but we suspect they may be there. That was Joe Machowski from the Natural History Museum in the UK. Still to come in the research highlights, an exoplanet weather forecast, sunny with no chance of rain, and how plants have slowed the rate of global warming over the last half a century. But first, say particle accelerator and most people think of massive underground machines like the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. But for years, scientists have been using smaller accelerators a few feet long to make x-rays for radiotherapy or medical imaging. These devices use microwaves to give particles a push. But for a while, scientists have wanted to build an accelerator using lasers, which could be much more compact and efficient. Now Robert Beyer and colleagues have done it. They work at the Slack National Accelerator Laboratory at Stanford University. Robert told Charlotte Stoddart about the new device, so small it's been dubbed an accelerator on a chip. Our accelerator is based on light waves, and light waves are 10,000 times shorter than microwaves. And that means our accelerator structure is also 10,000 times smaller. So instead of something that's three feet long, our accelerator is a millimeter long. That is absolutely tiny, barely visible on a fingertip. Has anybody built an accelerator that's um, anywhere near this small before? No, this is the first demonstration of an accelerator at this scale uh, driven by a laser beam. 
we have been thinking about this project since 1996, so we've been at it a long time. Persistence in science counts for a lot. What was the biggest challenge then, and how did you solve it? The, the biggest challenge is all accelerator experiments are very difficult. They take a lot of time, and they take very precise alignment. We had to overcome uh, both fabrication issues. How do we make the structure that's of those, the size of a wavelength of light? The second biggest hurdle was timing. We had to have the electrons arrive in the structure that precisely at the same time that the light pulses arrived at the structure. And that took us quite a while to figure out how to measure the timing so that we could get it right and, and thereby accelerate the electrons that were in the structure. Exactly how do you do that then? Well, the light is really an electric field, much like the electric field that's coming from your wall socket. So we use the laser to provide very high field electric fields in the accelerator structure by focusing the laser into the accelerator structure. And that gives us the high electric fields on which the electrons ride. And so literally the electrons ride or surf the crest of the electric field wave and they gain energy as they ride this electric field wave. How much energy are these electrons gaining? How powerful is your accelerator? Our accelerator has 300 megavolts per meter gradient. How would you compare that with the LHC, for example? We're about 10 to 30 times higher gradient than the LHC. So instead of needing kilometers of distance to reach those energies, we can do so in about a tenth of that distance. Wow. Does that mean that you could do some of the experiments they're doing at the LHC with your tiny, tiny accelerator on a chip? In the future, I think yes. My dream has been we could, that we could build the equivalent of the LHC on the SLAC laboratory site. And the SLAC site is only three kilometers long, so we have enough room at SLAC to build two accelerators, each one and a half kilometers in length. And with this optical accelerator or laser accelerator, that length is enough to allow us to do particle physics at the scale of the LHC. That's incredible. Is that the most exciting application, the application for basic research, or um, are there other exciting applications? There are other applications. We've given a lot of thought to converting the electrons from the accelerator into X-rays. The accelerator bunches the electrons into extremely short bunches. And when we put those bunches through a dielectric structure called an undulator, that's just a fancy science word for wiggler. So we put our electrons through this dielectric wiggler, and they wiggle. And when electrons wiggle, they radiate. And our electrons from this accelerator would radiate in the X-ray range. So we have the ability to build X-ray lasers on a tabletop scale. This was the motivation for our sponsor who sponsored our research, DARPA. DARPA would like to have us demonstrate a laser accelerator driving an X-ray source so they could make portable X-ray machines for medical applications in the field. Robert Beyer from Stanford University. To see how electrons in Robert's accelerator surf light waves, check out the nifty animation on the Stanford Slack website. Follow the link there from the Nature podcast page. Soon I'll be heading across town to dispel some decades-old scientific myths. But first, it's time for the research highlights read by Charlotte Stoddart. 
the forecast is dry and bright for one lucky extrasolar planet. The memorably named GJ3470 is over 10 times more massive than Earth. You can see it from our home planet, and astronomers got a closer look using a large telescope in Arizona. They studied the ultraviolet and infrared light coming from the planet's host star. The starlight dims as the planet passes in front of it, and by watching the dimming, the team could probe light scattered by the planet's atmosphere. It told them the planet enjoys blue skies and no clouds. The data is so precise, the team thinks the telescope on the ground could now be used to discover Earth-sized planets around similar stars. Find that paper in Astronomy and Astrophysics. Overgrowth might be a nuisance in your garden, but growing plants spurred on by rising levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere have slowed the rate of global warming. Scientists used an Earth system model to analyse past emissions from industry and changes in deforestation and agriculture. The team simulated the carbon cycle and climate over the last 150 years with and without the effect of CO2 on vegetation. The results were clear. If plants hadn't soaked up so much of the gas, carbon dioxide levels would have risen and the climate would have warmed by an extra third of a degree. Read more in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Who invented penicillin? Any school science quiz would allow the answer Alexander Fleming. But truth be told, Fleming didn't make this life-saving antibiotic. He discovered a mould called penicillium and called the active ingredient penicillin. It was years before other scientists extracted penicillin the ingredient and turned it into penicillin the useful drug. Fleming's drug discovery is one of many scientific myths. A comment piece this week explains how they start and spread. They're often grounded in reality, but embellished along the way for want of a good story. As more people turn to the internet, and authors don't always rely on primary sources for their information, these stories circulate in their mutated forms. To seek the truth about Fleming, I went to the birthplace of his myths, his old lab bench in a London hospital. We're here at St Mary's Hospital in the Alexander Fleming Laboratory Museum. I'm here with Kevin Brown, curator of the museum. It's a really old laboratory, so we've got a really dark wooden bench surrounding the room, and on it are piles and piles of Petri dishes and test tubes and containers and flasks and three, three windows. So Fleming would have, would have sat at this desk, I assume, and looked out onto a busy road below that we can hear. In the centre of the lab bench there, you have a Petri dish. And that Petri dish, back at the time, he noticed something very unusual growing in it. What he observed was it had become contaminated by a mould. Now, that mould didn't interest him one little bit. Contamination like that happened all the time in his lab. What interested him is that area close to the mould where there are no bacteria. And this was where the myth surrounding the discovery started, wasn't it? Well, the thing is, what's happened over the years is people have forgotten that Fleming's part was just at the beginning. He made the initial observation, and from that, other people later on developed penicillin and brought it into clinical use. So the general public don't seem to realise that it took a lot of extra time and effort following this initial discovery to, to develop the life-saving drug that we know today. Fleming's role was the one they could understand more than anything. 
Here you have the lonely searcher in a musty, dusty, cluttered lab. And he notices something, and he then makes a deduction from that. It was actually brought into clinical use as the result of the work of a team of scientists at the William Dunn School of Pathology in Oxford. Now, the work of the Oxford team was very much based on hard, laborious bench work. There's less glamour to that. But also, I think the media take part. Because after penicillin had started to come into use, the media were interested. They went to Florian Chain at Oxford, who made no comment. They came to St Mary's and Fleming, who was notably silent as a person, was happy to talk to them. And later, as the myths developed, he was amused by them, but as a man of few words, never did anything to dispel them. Now, the discovery of penicillin wasn't the only myth, you know, attached to Fleming. Tell us about some more. Well, there's a lot of mythology as to where the mould came from. Now, the most common story which you've probably heard is it came through an open window. Just one problem. The windows were never open. Fleming would have been a bad bacteriologist if they had been. Now, the Evening Standard claimed that it was all down to the action of the Luftwaffe. They bombed Paddington Station in 1940. The force of the blast disturbed a petri dish. Okay, if you accept that, then you have to accept Fleming discovered something more important than penicillin, time travel, to get it back to 1928. (laughs) The most likely explanation is it was either airborne or on someone's clothing, came up from the allergy lab below us where a mycologist was studying the connection between fungi and asthma. And there's one tale in particular relating to Winston Churchill. This is something that just goes around all the time. Now, according to this, Fleming twice saved the life of Churchill. The first time as boys when they were out swimming. And in gratitude, the Churchill family paid for Fleming's medical studies. The second time was after the Casablanca conference during the war. And Churchill had pneumonia. According to that legend, his life was saved by penicillin supplied by Fleming. The whole thing is nonsense. Speaking of stories, do you think that's the main reason why these sorts of tales last? I mean, it's been over 80 years now since Fleming discovered penicillin, but we're still hearing these stories. I think that's largely to do with the fact that... Because he was so unassuming, in the 1940s he was seen as the ordinary man who'd done something wonderful. Now this was a time when science and medicine were seen as the preserve of experts who were remote. And indeed in the aftermath of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, science had become frightening. And Fleming represented the human face of medicine. To what extent do you think tales like those surrounding Fleming and other scientists harm the public perception of science? One thing I think they do is ignore the hard work that goes into science. 
There's the idea that uh, everything just happens to come about quickly without any hard work involved. And what can historians of science like yourself do to try and debunk these tales? I think it's important to try and find out what actually happened and having found out, put forward what seems to be the truth. Because of course, after the events, it's only how you interpret it and there can be many interpretations of the same data. What's the most absurd myth any visitor has, has put to you? Well, one of them is uh, the idea of uh, Fleming discovering penicillin when he ate a mouldy cheese sandwich. <laughs> what do you think Fleming would have had to say to that if he were alive today? He'd have said nothing. He'd have just added it to the Fleming myth. That was Kevin Brown at the Alexander Fleming Laboratory Museum in London. For more scientific myths about Joseph Lister and John Snow, turn to the comment piece at nature.com nature. Finally this week, it's the news chat and Ewan Calloway is here, reporter for Nature. You've written a story, Ewan, this week that details a case of suspicious statistics and the CEO of a pharmaceutical company who was accused of meddling. Yeah, it's all about, uh, about crime and statistics, which is a topic you don't often hear about. The gist of the story is, is about a decade ago, a drug company called Intermune um, conducted a clinical study of, of a medicine they were testing. It more or less didn't work, but the company put out a press release touting some aspects of the trial that they argued that did show improvements, that people on this drug, which was being tested to treat a lung disease, they were less likely to die than people who are on a placebo. So they put out this press release. It had in it some information about the so-called primary endpoint, the main focus of the study, and that hadn't been reached. There was something they were looking for for it to increase lung function that they hadn't been able to show. But the press release mentioned it did have this kind of secondary endpoint. Right. So all clinical trials, or at least all well-done clinical trials, have a pre-specified primary endpoint, basically saying before the trial starts, this is how we're going to measure the success or failure. And for this case, for this trial, it was uh, something called progression-free survival, which is kind of a mix of like, does the patient not get worse while on the drug? Um, and do they, are they still alive at the end of the trial? And by that measure, the trial failed. But then what happened was that this, this company, led by its CEO, whose name is Scott Harkonnen, they conducted a what is called a secondary analysis or a post hoc secondary analysis, kind of after the fact, kind of looking through their data. And they found that amongst the, the patients with mild and moderate forms of this lung disease, that they were actually significantly less likely to die uh, during the trial versus people on placebo. And this result was deemed statistically significant. But the problem was is that it wasn't, um, it wasn't pre-specified. So the government, which ended up indicting the CEO of this drug company, they indicted Scott Harkonnen, they argued that this benefit for these people was, um, was misleading and, and that he in, had engaged in data dredging, basically looking for a result that, that passed some arbitrary statistical threshold. So an unsuccessful cl clinical trial then by the measures of the pharmaceutical company who set it up, but then afterwards a kind of rationalisation of some results and a post hoc finding. And of course the CEO, Scott Harkonnen, as you mentioned, was indicted and is under house arrest currently. Well, right. He was indicted several years ago for wire fraud for uh, transmitting this press release and for illegally marketing uh, this drug. So fast forward, um, you know, there have been a number of appeals from Scott Harkonnen's lawyers, and the, 
the, the appeals courts have kind of slapped them down, kind of summar sum, summarily rejected them. Now, his last appeal is to the U.S. Supreme Court, and in the next month or two, uh, the court will decide whether or not to hear the case or to just end it once and for all. He's serving house arrest, as you as you say now. He's, uh, he's been forced to pay a small fine, and he could be basically disbarred from, from ever working for a drug company, being involved in research in any way possible. Your story focuses on the update of this case. We're waiting, of course, for the Supreme Court to make their decision. Uh, in the background, of course, is this issue of whether statistics can be a crime or not. Uh, you've been speaking to people in the field about this issue. Well, statistics, I mean, statistics is, isn't a crime. What the government alleged was that he, that, that, that Scott Harkonnen uh, interpreted the, the data from this trial in such a, such a manner that he knew what he was putting out there in this press release was, was false. The way the defense interprets the government's conclusion is that they're saying that, you know, stating your scientific opinion can be a crime. Now, the government will go back and say that this guy was illegally marketing this drug, that they have no interest in prosecuting scientists uh, for stating their scientific opinions, and that this case is about teaching pharmaceutical companies a lesson that they, they cannot illegally promote their drugs through under, under the guise of scientific freedom. Thanks, you, and more on that story and a lot more at nature.com slash news. That's it for this week. Thanks again to the Guardian newspaper offices for letting us borrow their studios. This week, we're working on banishing our own technical gremlins. Tune in next time when we'll be finding out if the Amazon was once an orchard. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. <laughs>